And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high above the Cood Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strahan and Gary K. Wolf with very, very special guest Kid Johnson on the 300th episode of the Cood Street Podcast! Yay! And Yay. Kid, just, our favorite guest is back, and... Uh... And we can start off. We can start off saying congratulations, kids, for a Nebula nomination for a story we want to talk about in a minute: the Dream Quest of Velit Bull. I assume that's Velit and not Velit. Velit. No, it is in fact Velit Bow. Yeah, with as many consonants as I could cram in there, actually, I spelled that name so many ways while I was writing it that in the end I just said, "Oh, the heck with it," and I threw all the consonants <laughs> to. <laughs> Which is why it's double L's and double T's. And there's no double V, but there could have been. No. And there, in, in violation of Lovecraft Convention, there are no apostrophes and there are no constructions using the letters G-H. Well, I was actually – thereby hangs a tale. Because when I wrote oh. this story, um, I wrote the whole – I wrote Velvet Bow. And, of course, a big chunk of it, we meet gugs and we meet ghasts and we meet night yeah. and we meet, meet uh, little gold glass. You know, all these things that start with a G and end with horror. And uh, I sent it to Elizabeth Byrne to read it. And she said, I love this. I love your language and stuff. But all oh, these names are so bad. <laughs> <laughs> I had, and I had to make a decision. Either I file the serial numbers off the names or I leave it. I may have written to you about this, Jonathan, yeah. by the way. <laughs> I may have written to you and say, I'm thinking about giving them all names, like the way Tolkien uses elvish names and dwarvish names for the same thing. Can't remember if I did. But yeah, I think you did <laughs> I at some point. Mm-hmm. I, I, I guess a good place to start, because, I mean, the Dream Quest of Velvet Bow came out last August and has just been nominated for the Nebula, and you have a new novel due out later in the year, The Riverbank... Uh, which is coming out from Small Beer, I think, in about September, I think it is. And yes, yes. I, I guess the first question, because the one thing that both stories have in common is that they revisit and reinterpret classic oeuvres of fiction, classic, either a classic single work like uh, Kenneth Graham's The Wind in the Willows or the Cthulhu mythos from Lovecraft. What drew you back to reinventing or reconsidering older worlds of fiction. I think we can blame it on John Myers Myers. Um, <laughs> one of, one of, right, exactly. One of my favorite books um, ever, one of my Desert Island, or if humanity is going to die in the next 10 years, I will have read it 10 times between now and then, <laughs> um, is uh, um, uh, uh, Silverlock, yeah. uh, which uh, the conceit is that uh, Shandon, Clarence Shandon, who goes by a Silverlock in this world, um, is a Chicago uh, salesman who accidentally, uh, he sails off, he's sort of disaffected 30-something-year-old um, for whom life is ashes and meaningless. Um, he falls off a ship in the sea out, out of Baltimore and ends up in the Commonwealth. And the Commonwealth is an island, but it is also the Commonwealth of Letters. And in the Commonwealth, all of the sort of what I consider the Michael Durda light classics uh, <laughs> are all given manifest existence. So Robin Hood lives there, and so does uh, Brian Boru, and so does Beowulf, and so does um, 
uh, Manon Lascaux, and so do all these other people, Emma Watson. And instead of replaying their stories um, so that you could insert yourself into them in this world, they interact. They get into trouble together. They start wars. They... Um, they uh, they make passes at each other. All kinds of adventures happen, and so it is a land where um, where somebody can walk in and have things happen. Strange things happen with all their literary heroes. Um, and I was reading it, and one of the things I've read it so many times, but one of the things I really noticed was that, um, and he calls this out directly, that there's only one woman. Um, she's always every woman that Silverlock, uh, Shandon sees, he always mistakes for the first woman he sees there, um, who is a beautiful innocent who sometimes she's, I think, Rosalind and sometimes she's somebody else, but she's like all of the romantic, uh, um, girls that ever were in classic literature. And I was like, but there's nothing else. There are no other women except for, um, Samiramis. I don't even know how that's pronounced. Everybody else has made Marion, and they're all like these lighthearted, pretty girls. And I was like, so what would my commonwealth be? Because that's, that is a commonwealth ah. in which I have nothing to do except stand around looking ornate, you know, until somebody, you know, until somebody, uh, tries to seduce me or something. So then I got to thinking about the IPs, the intellectual properties, the worlds that I actually would want to play in. And that's where this all started was um, me saying, well, do you want to live in um, Tristram Shandy? Maybe. So I thought about that. I read a little story about it. Um, where did, would I want to, and what I realized is that places like Wind in the Willows are easy. You know, it's like I could easily imagine inserting myself into that world. Um, other places like Lovecraft, much, much harder. But this is the Commonwealth that I've chosen. And I wanted to see if I could fit into it. And that's and it's still ongoing. I'm still writing and thinking about other people's writing and how I would other people's worlds and how people like me would would fit. How important. Well, you've done this. You've visited sort of other fictional traditions. I mean, going all the way back to to the Fox Woman and and Story Mm -hmm. Kid is really kind of about Dido and Aeneas. uh, Yeah, it's. I've, um, the, uh, my wife considered it, or my wife reincarnated as a solitaire is in a sort of hybrid style of Lawrence Stern's Tristan yeah. Shandy. Um, I've also, uh, written a, uh, epic poem, uh, that is the nun's priest second tale, which means that the chickens from the nun's priest tale from Chaucer are all back. And I wrote that in the voice, not of Chaucer, although I thought about it. I wrote it in the voice of the Cogs Hill translation of Chaucer because I realized nobody would read it. Six people would read <laughs> Nunsbury's second tale if I wrote it in Chaucerian voice. Um, and it was a lot of fun to see if I could imitate Cogs Hill because he's got a fantastic voice. Uh-huh. <laughs> Generally, there's a word I've heard, and I don't know whether it's made it into the into – uh, Clutes Encyclopedia or not, but the term I've heard is bibliophantasy. Uh, okay. Fantasies that take place in other books to some like extent. Like Tom Hoyt and Jasper Ford. And the Jasper Ford things. things. Uh, there are, uh, there was a Tom Hoyt in, in England. Um, yeah. Isn't that his name? He does like uh, the Beowulf one. He's always doing that, or was. 
and and there was a well, but there's it's it's not just going into somebody else's work, um, but sometimes just you know borrowing characters, borrowing structures. But the th- interesting thing about Valid Bull, uh, which came out in the same year as the Ballad of Black Tom from Victor Laval, is that you're both dealing with very specific works. Um, you know, not and, and yeah. to some extent you could make the argument that that the dream quest of unknown Kadath was not even a typical Lovecraft story. Right. I think you made that because you wrote a review of the book or a, um, yeah, a response to the book. And uh, you pointed that out, that that's sort of uh, Lovecraft trying Dunsany. Um, yeah. And it really isn't similar in voice, although as soon as he hits the cosmological stuff, you know, all of his usual ticks kick in again. Oh, yeah. <laughs> But And I think that that's true. Um, and actually, this is not written in the voice of Lovecraft at all. It had a lot more in common with Clark Ashton Smith. Um, and if I had read any Jean Ray at that point, I probably would have drawn heavily from Jean Ray's voice. Mm-hmm. I'm curious. I mean, how important do you think it is, given you know what you've done with, with, with Velvet Bow, what you've done with the Riverbank, how important do you think it is that works of literature that are part of our culture and society eventually pass out of copyright and are available as part of the writer's toolkit? I think it's, I think it's necessary. Um, I, a work that is, has sufficient sort of, uh, um, resonance and gravitas, uh, will draw writers, will draw artists, will draw interpreters, will draw people who attempt to own it for themselves. And uh, they we do that anyway is the thing. I mean, we it's just that uh, uh, people do dr- sit down and draw. They've always drawn, you know, what they think a character looks like. Mm. They've always drawn little portraits or written little mm-hmm. stories. You know, here's my funny sequel to my funny fake Anglo-Saxon. That would be Lewis Carroll, actually. Um, so I think it's fine. I think it's necessary. I mean, I'm kind of a, a creative commons person mm-hmm. in principle. Um, once I've made some money out of something, then then I feel like, you know, I, I want to see what other people, what alchemy happens when other people bring their insights, bring their visions to it. And yet we're somewhat suspicious, aren't we, of um, doing exactly this kind of thing under under different circumstances. I mean, you could classify, though I wouldn't, uh, Velvet Bow or um, the, the Victor Laval book or any one of a number of other things as basically fan fiction, right? Well, I, I mean, isn't what, who is it who said all fiction is fan fiction? Sure, sure. I mean, and I, mean, I think that's... Yeah. That's not quite true, but it's true enough. Yeah. I mean, it, it is, is the sole difference a perceived <laughs> level of quality? I mean, I'm not, I'm not in any way trying to reduce the, you know, the achievement with Vela Bow, which I think is significant, or the intelligence with which it's, that's been brought to it or to other things. But I guess what I'm trying to say is we have, I think, with, particularly since the science fiction and fantasy in the last quarter century, regarded repurposing other people's work with some suspicion. It's either seen as being crassly commercial or um, culture, you know, insignificant and less creative and less worthwhile. And you know, I think that that's a blind spot for the field. Yep. I, I, I think that's really confusing. Well, 
to be a literature at all. I mean, yeah, I mean, if you if go you, ahead, if you Gary. <laughs> I, I don't know where to start with that. I mean, I, I'm sure there were people in, in, in 1603 com, complaining that Shakespeare was just ripping off the Hollandshed Chronicles, which he was. Uh, and in other words, this is what writers do. But I think there's a critical distinction to be made between fan fiction, such as Twilight, let's say, and what uh, another term I like, critical fiction, fiction which engages with another arena of art in a kind of critical revisionist way. One of the most interesting things about Velvet Bow uh, is that it, it, it's a perfectly powerful story on its own right, but it engages with Lovecraft in a way that all the Lovecraft imitators, including some of Clark Ashton Smith, including some of Robert Block and Manly Wade Wallman, and all the way down to people who are still writing Lovecraft pastiches, it seems to me that's a very different way of engaging with fiction. You're not just trying to imitate it, you're trying to engage in a dialogue with it. Yeah, we've always talked about science fiction as being a conversation, you know, and yeah. it starts somewhere, you know, it starts with Frankenstein or it starts with Wells or it starts wherever you want to choose. But we've always talked about it as the works before have made statements which we are saying, but what else is possible? And the, I think that what a lot of these things are doing um, and I'm going to challenge you on Twilight in a second. But I think what a lot of these things are doing is they are challenging or they are saying what else is possible, but they're asking it about different things. So instead of the Campbellian five people, and by that I mean uh, John John Campbell, um, you know, they're here. I want five different takes on what, you know, psychic projection looks like, where it's an idea that everybody is in conversation with or everybody's in conversation with the idea of militarized uplifted animals or something like that one of one of the things we're doing is we're exploring things like where where we're in conversation with the voice um and that's not a science fictional uh technique that that is a literary technique um so i think that is one we're in a conversation with the voice or with the themes but not necessarily with the plots no, but you're also in conversation with the worldviews to some extent. One of yes. the things that Bellabow immediately calls attention, it calls to our attention, is that Lovecraft didn't know what to do with women. There are no women to speak of at all in Lovecraft, and yet there, the worlds he described could accommodate women, as 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 you showed, or 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 when Victor Laval basically was addressing Lovecraft's fairly severe problems with with racial attitudes. <laughs> yeah, um, and. There, that's what I mean about critical fiction. You're, you're pointing out lapses, vacancies in the body of work that you're engaging. Right, right. This is, I think that this has always happened, although now, and it's, it happens in literary as well. I mean, witness every person who's written, you know, Madame Frankenstein or something like that. Yeah. Um, uh, but I think that this is one way to interrogate the works. Um, there are you can interrogate a work critically by standing outside of it and saying, well, here's what's wrong with it. You know, what this doesn't engage with is class or race or, or gender yeah. or, you know, whatever, whatever you're interested in. Or if you write it, you're interrogating it at a very fundamental level where every single sentence is challenged. Um, you can't challenge, you know, what Laval did. And I think that he did a, an amazing job. I'm, I was incredibly impressed by it. Um, but I, I feel like he, he interrogated every sentence of Lovecraft and said, is there another way? 
what is mm-hmm. he saying here? And if he's not saying anything, then why isn't he saying anything? Should he be saying anything? And that's the question we all ask. You know, it's, uh, it's not just that, uh, Lovecraft was sexist or racist, um, and that he was also a creature of his time and also that he was, uh, an outlier even in his time in some ways. Right. Also, what, why did he, why did he make these decisions in his writing? Because it's not that hard for him to have just gone back the way I did with the Man of Bridge of the Mist and changed the pronoun for every other character until you have a an equitable balance. Well, one of the... Well, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say one other example of that sort of thing, um, which is completely different and in some ways similar to Velibo, was was Ursula Le Guin's Lavinia. Where she, she took a character who was virtually absent from the Aeneid and reconstructed the entire myth from from this point of view. You know, that's um, Lavinia is one of those moments that I'm like, curse you, Ursula Le Guin. <laughs> the Aeneid is one of the works. It's a work that I turn to again and again, and it never occurred to me to do that because I said, oh, you know, it'll be like a girl, you know, girl power thing if you ever write about you know, Lavinia, or if you put a spunky mm-hmm. girl warrior into Aeneas's troops or something like that. And what, what Le Guin did was so profound and so much, such an extreme revisioning that yeah. I feel it was um, extraordinary. And that means there's no reason for the rest of us. She can just drop the mic and walk away. <laughs> damn it. Damn it. <laughs> With Velvet Bow having been out in the world for six months now, do you look back at it and think there's anything that you would significantly change or reconsider about it? Um, that's an entertaining question because when I recorded the audiobook, mm. um, which I did in December, it'll be coming out, I think, in May, um, I changed a ton. But it was all very, very tiny. It was like one sentence here, one word there. Um, I, uh, I, I wouldn't change any of the fundamentals of it. There's like one sentence that I've never been happy with. But um, mostly uh, the real horror of a major revision happened before you saw it, Jonathan. Yeah. Because the version you saw was 35,000 and the version before that was 55,000. And and it was 20,000 words of gorgeous travelogue. I mean, I, I wept as I cut some of it out because I was like, but this is so beautiful. But it, <laughs> it did not drive the story for, forward at all. Yeah. And that, yeah. Some of that was because I was a little too directly pointed to DreamQuest still. Yeah. And DreamQuest actually ran rambles. And it just kind of ambles over here and it picks up a stone and it stares at it for a while. And that's what I was doing. I was just... I wrote it for fun for myself, and um, so I was any time I could do something that entertained me without regard to the reader, I did. But then I had to go back through and remove forty um, percent of the story, um, which I have those files on my computer. And sometimes I think, oh, maybe I should do like a director's cut or something you someday. You <laughs> did you get any? Um, uh, pushback from Lovecraft purists? Once in a while. Um, actually, um, the only thing I particularly noticed, I mean, one thing is that I think it's clear in the story that I love this stuff. Yeah, I right. mean, 
And when I went back and reread it six times while I was working on this, um, I, I remembered I both felt it was like that sort of compassion you feel as you meet like the old boyfriend or the old girlfriend and you realize they have not aged well, but you did love them once and you still see that in them when you get together for a drink with them. And I read it six times, which means I'm, I could recite whole paragraphs of it from memory after I was done with that. Um, and I, I feel like, I didn't disrespect the pieces that Lovecraft laid down. You know, if Lovecraft writes sexist cled, which is the jungle shores, <laughs> yeah. um, my, I said, I get why he has sexist cled, or I'm sorry, racist cled, but my cled is not that cled. So my cled is full of articulate, noisy traders who wear beautiful jackets and, um, Cled is one of the very few places in my uh, dreamlands that has electrical light. Cled uh-huh. is actually in advance of most of the rest of the dreamlands. Um, because I was like, I can understand why Randolph Carter, that phobic man, mm-hmm. might not notice this. But there's no reason why Velvet Bow wouldn't notice this. Um, so mostly they've been very respect, uh, very, very affectionate because I've been respectful. Yeah. Um, there ha- there was, however, some sort of secret 4chan or something like that when the story first came out that essentially they were trying to decide if they were going to get all pissy about it. And, um, and then it vanished. I never saw it again. Yeah. So presumably that that was meant to be a closed conversation or something. <laughs> and they realized it 24 hours in and they closed it. I don't know. But... Um, but that's the only time I saw any resistance or any pushback from people. I'm sure there are people who don't like it because we all have relationships with the works we adore. And sometimes those relationships are not actually healthy. I mean, I've talked about it on the podcast before and I don't want to take up time. But a, a, another novel, which I just wrote the review of, is, is um, Paul Lafarge's The Night Ocean. Uh, which is actually about Lovecraft, and uh, it, there's a, it's 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 about Lovecraft's secret sex life, except it turns out there wasn't one. Uh, oh, but it's the, it, it, but the guy did Wait, enormous my amounts of research. Secret fanfic life. <laughs> it, 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 it is fanfic within fanfic within fanfic, and and one of the minor characters who shows up in it um, is St. Joshi, who is the leading Lovecraft scholar, the Lovecraft bibliographer, the Lovecraft biographer, and who can. And has been on occasion fairly prickly in defense of Lovecraft, um, and I'm I'm just curious to see what the Lovecraft people are going to make of that novel when it comes out. Um, you know, I never heard anything from Joshi at all. I mean, I never saw anything when I was like Google searching my name or anything like that. So either I doubt if it flew below his radar. I'm guessing he just chose not to for some reason. Um, but there's so much of it that I'm sure he has an opinion about the fact we're all going there now. I mean, this yeah. is the thing we are all doing. Actually, I'll say that I'm going to be interested if at some point people start to engage like this with Heinlein, who I think is problematic in many, many ways. Um, and we still can't because it's all under copyright and all. But But I will be very curious to see, you know, what somebody coming to puppet masters from a radically different perception would do. I think you could make an argument that much science fiction for the last 60 years has been engaging with Heinlein, (laughs) just not by name. 
That's not wrong, actually. <laughs> it's it's not wrong, but it does show how things get locked down, uh, you know, quite heavily in the modern era. I mean, Lovecraft stopped writing long enough ago uh, that the you know the work is accessible, the worlds are accessible, and for whatever reason, it has remained. Um, significant enough to enough readers and you could see something similar maybe with Robert E. Howard but I think it's also locked down still even though it's not that dissimilar an era and you couldn't get away with reimagining Faffer and the Grey Mouser say if that had been something yeah, that you, cho- no. you chose to do which is very frustrating in some ways I mean I, I read a unpublished still uh, piece that Adam Roberts wrote set in um, Middle Earth which was terrific, mm. but was then not published because of copyright concerns. Mm. And, I mean, I can empathize with it, but it is frustrating because when you look at the major works of modern science fiction and fantasy particularly, if you look at Dune, if you look at Heinlein, if you look at Philip K. Dick, if you look at all kinds of things, you could say, it would be really interesting to take that and you know shift it 75 degrees to, to one angle and come at it in a, in, a, in a different way, not particularly looking to exploit it commercially, but to investigate it artistically. And that seems to be a, you know, a, an avenue that not only doesn't open up that often, but is opening up less frequently as copyright gets extended and extended and extended, which I find frustrating. I mean, you and I, Kidj, I think at one point talked briefly about expanding this kind of an idea, maybe doing a, a, a book down the, these lines, an anthology. And you come down to, yeah. well, what actually is... What work is out there? Let it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so what's public I mean, domain? You know, do you, you can have... write about Burroughs' Venus, but you can't write about his Mars. Yeah. Uh, and, and but it... you can write about something that looks a lot like it. I mean, the, the question is, do we have to use the actual terms, characters, narratives? For example, you mentioned Jonathan, the Fawford and the Grey Mouser, and no people are not writing Fawford and the Grey Mouser stories, but they are under another name. Michael Swanwick has his series. Mm-hmm. Garth Nix has some. Even Michael Chabon did a sort of Fawford and the Grey Mouser novella. Right. So I can... love that book, by the way. Je- gentlemen, uh, gentlemen, gentlemen of the Road. Road. Of the Road. Yeah, that's, love that's my favorite of his. It is. Um, and it's... Actually, Jonathan, that's interesting because I had been thinking about this very directly and specifically because I really loved Vellet. Um, I loved her as a person. I loved her car, her her gug, Votel Buick. Um, somebody um, on my Facebook wrote me and said um, that it's there's nothing wrong with the world where you can write the gug had no air conditioning. Um, <laughs> and I think I loved writing about her, and I started thinking it would be fun to write two more of these so that they could be together. So it would be three novellas about Velvet Bow in different situations. And I couldn't think of, there were all kinds of things that kind of, because I have some specific rules about what Velvet would find herself in. Um, but then a lot of things like Fawford and the Grey Mouser, not possible. Even though Fawford and the Grey Mouser is so centrally positioned. But I couldn't just send Velvet to a world where a guy named, you know, Furfid and his <laughs> little friend, the Grey Tabby Cat, um, I couldn't do that because the point of it is that these things already exist. Um, so I've been thinking a lot about that. It's like, well, I can't send her to Mars because, or Barsoom. Um, I could send her to Venus, but why would she go to Venus? 
I could send her to Jules Verne. And I've been thinking a lot about that. I've been thinking about um, The Blazing World by Margaret Cavendish. And I've been thinking a lot about um, Jules Verne, um, Voyage to the Center of the Earth. Um, but the number of IPs, the number of sort of centrally located science fiction and fantasy texts that you can point to are very, very few. And they, a lot of them are in the canon. You know, you can point to the Iliad, you can point to Beowulf, you can point to, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, Chaucer or the Decameron. Um, you can point to the Aeneid, but you can't point to the works that actually mean something to late 20th and 21st century readers, which are, you know, Fawford or even more contemporary, you know, co- contemporarily. You can't really point to Frodo except through elaborate sort of circumlocutions. Well, there are worlds that seem to me to be invented for, for, for multiple stories. I mean, um, yeah. There, there, there are worlds that derive from the stories. I mean, I really don't want to see any more adventures of of, of Frodo or anybody in that world. It seems to me that those characters were complete. You know, and and the story was was the story, and the characters existed within the story. It's, it's it's a world that exists for that story, as opposed to I don't know, say Discworld, which is a machine for generating an infinite number. Of right. Stories. Yeah. But see, I don't even world. Sorry, real world. You can just keep writing Riverworld stories or Discworld stories or or stuff like that. It's a big – these are worlds that were built in which people moved. So there yeah. are plenty of Middle-earth stories too, but Middle-earth is so driven by its Campbellian central, you know, uh, story. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, I mean these other worlds like Fawford and the Grey Mauser, that whole world. I mean anything that you can build a successful role-playing setting out of <laughs> really – the fam- Fiction writes itself. Just that Lovecraft is like that. Lovecraft's worlds, plural, um, are so complicated, um, so multifarious that um, that there are a million things you can do with them, and we have seen a million things done with them because uh-huh. it was permitted. You know, August Ehrlich writes it. Everybody wrote Cthulhu stuff, and because nobody challenged it, um, that means there's a lot of really interesting material, and the whole cosmological horror thing became a thing in a way it wouldn't have been otherwise. And, of course, one of the problems is that when we see works that do engage with the, the kind of uh, creative worlds you're talking about, generally they're done in a very um, laudatory way, a non-analytical way. Right. You know, it'll be this mm-hmm. in tribute of so-and-so, and because it's in tribute to so-and-so, you're not really going to deconstruct what they're, in, you know, what they're attempting. I mean, there have been one or two attempts, you know, sort of tendentially to do, you know, to come at some of the properties we're talking about. Uh, I mean, Andy Duncan did analyze Middle Earth in Senator Bilbo, for example, mm-hmm. which was yeah. a really interesting way of proving that actually I think there's more story engine to it around the sides of it and at angles to it than you might otherwise you know, Im- right. initially suspect. Um, and I, I suppose the thing is, it's very, I'm sorry. Agreed. Absolutely agreed. I just think it's very hard <laughs> to go up to somebody and say, I would like to, you know, enter your fictional world and come at it at a completely different angle in a way that will basically critique everything that you've done. You can see why a creator might be a little bit sort of, you know, I mean, it's like when we were talking, it's like I suddenly thought at a, at a certain period in my time, in my life, I enjoyed reading John D. McDonald's Travis McGee novels, right? Yes. And I could imagine those imagined from a completely different angle 
in the, exactly the same world, but you could never mm-hmm. do it because they're locked down too tight, too, too tightly in copyright. Um, right. And mysteries do it all the time. They just change yeah. all the names. You know, they, they, we have seen so many Sherlock. Well, oh, yeah. Sherlock's not a good example because people have been directly and indirectly engaged with Sherlock, but we've seen, um, Nero Wolf before. Mm. Yeah. Um, and we've seen, we've seen people come at, um, Classic novels from a different point of view. Mary Riley, I forgot who wrote that, which was in the version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from the point of view of the maid. There was, um, oh, Peter Carey did uh, a version of Great Expectations from the point of Magwitch. Um, and they're, they're completely original novels, you know, using fairly familiar territory. My concern with that is that uh, it, it too easily becomes an elevator pitch kind of idea, yeah. the sort of thing you see, uh, and I don't know who started this, but I've, I've decided to declare war on any review or blurb that says X meets Y. Um, <laughs> because I saw one today, somebody on, on, on the web was talking about Stan Robinson's new novel as Waterworld meets Wall Street. And <laughs> I don't know who thought of that. Is, is that a publicist? I'm pretty sure that was not Stan's idea. Right, right. But it, it, it becomes- you know, that, that conflicting ideas, because that was such a common thing for science fiction, and certainly it's a common thing for Hollywood. Um, so we're in the habit now of trying to force stories into situations like this. Um, I, I've been watching The Librarians, which mm-hmm. I find really charming. Um, partly because I have a secret crush, not so secret as of this moment, on Christian Kane, who's one of the characters or one of the actors. But um, And I was a huge Leverage fan. And uh, the librarians I've heard seen described as supernatural meets Leverage. Um, And while I'm willing to believe Leverage because Dean Devlin is the producer of both and it's an ensemble cast where people solve problems, basically – the supernatural thing, the only reason why you would call it supernatural meets leverage is because it's a supernatural story, but it's hugely Arthurian, which which supernatural never deals with the TV show. So calling it X meets anything, it's, yeah. we, I understand why they do it, but sometimes you can see how desperately they are flailing for a way to describe the X meets Y you know, to fill the slots in the A meets B. Oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a marketing thing completely, and, and it's very tempting for, I think, a publicist to do, or for a, certainly for a, a TV publicist. You can do that with anything. You can you can take Valid Bow as H.P. Lovecraft it's meets... Gaudi Knight. It meets oh, yeah, Gaudi okay. Knight. <laughs> right. Gaudi Knight meets H.P. Lovecraft, because it starts right. at a women's university in what passes for the 30s. Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, you can absolutely make that argument pretty articulately oh the demon dogs have started barking so so if you hear no this may be the, my last communication from this strange land if you hear nothing from me after this remember that I loved you all since, since we're hearing by, by a sheer coincidence I read aloud to my partner Stacy the other night Frank Belknap's longs The, the Hounds of Tindalos oh, which is, fun. is that a goofy it's, it's goofy, but it is so powerful. It makes no sense whatsoever, um, and yet it's utterly convincing. And it's the sort of thing that, that that Farnsworth writer, the editors of Weird Tales, must have thought tone is everything. If this story <laughs> sounds scary enough, 
we don't care if it makes any sense whatsoever. It need not make sense. Actually, um, let's talk a little bit about reading out loud because uh-huh. I just read Velvet Bow out loud, and next month I'm driving out to read Riverbank out loud. Um, I'm doing audiobooks with Talking Books um, Inc. I can't remember or LTD. I forget what, but they're in Asheville, North Carolina, and. I So I've thought a lot about what makes a story read aloud well and what you learn from reading a story aloud versus what you learn from not. Um, you have to set aside the fact there are certain people who could read anything out loud and make it sound interesting and compelling, but mm-hmm. you notice things when you read aloud. Um, and you notice, like, you notice that Belknap, Frank Belknap long that it's actually zero sense, which while you were reading it um, at full speed, you know, at the immersive, you know, eyes on on page or on screen, you probably didn't notice the same way, but you slow down to read it out loud. And all of a sudden, all the, all of the gaps, all of the reason, reasoning gaps start to appear. Mm -hmm. At least that's my experience. I love reading out loud. I can never get enough of it. So here's my pitch to anybody who who listens to the podcast. Let me know. I'll read your audio book because I love doing it. <laughs> See, I hate them. I, 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 I don't ever listen. I don't. Your books, Jonathan. I'll read all your books. I just cannot really engage with someone reading a story aloud. That is. That's why I'm reading them aloud, because I can't hear other people read them aloud without saying, oh, I could do that that better. My my problem is my attention wanders, and then I've lost some key detail, and it doesn't seem to to bed down into my mind in the same way. Right. That is agreed. Um, Gathering information... Um, audioly, um, is it, um, there is a substantial minority who that is how they learn and how they acquire information. But for a lot of people, it doesn't work. What does work is that they do it while they are like, um, while they're doing something else. So that becomes an important thing as well. But, um, I find that I can't read on the page without skipping forward because I read so fast. Yeah. What I also found, I mean, at one point when I was reading for the best of the year, there are a lot of the online magazines, particularly that produce uh, podcasts of their short fiction every month. And I had Mm -hmm. thought that one way to keep up with things better would be to listen to their stories uh, as podcasts in amongst all the other bits of time that I had when I was traveling or whatever else, because I could cover more time and it'd be great. Mm -hmm. And what I found was I never heard the writer. All I heard was the reader. Right. The, here, I, I, Kate Baker is a fantastic reader, but Kate Baker is such a good reader that she will cover up problems in a story with her ability to craft a sentence, you know, ability to speak a sentence. See, I, I, mean, I, I don't want to put Kate Baker down, but actually she destroyed a Sophia Samatar story for me. Really? Because yeah. I, think she's a, I think she's a really good reader, but I also think that she... Part of why she is a good reader is that she's an actor. Um, so she covers up a story. She'll cover up flaws in a bad story. Yeah. But sometimes she'll bring her own interpretation to a story. And that's why I'm recording my own stories. Yeah. Because um, while I like Kate's readings of my stories, I'm not going to have Kate do all of them. And nobody will read them better than I do. Because I know exactly where the, the important parts are. 
Well, not only that, but you you have an engaging voice, and that was the point I was going to make. I don't listen to audio stories or audio books, but I do go to a number of readings at conventions, and sometimes an author's voice, and I'm thinking specifically of Andy Duncan here, changes the way you read his prose forever. You cannot read an Andy Duncan story once you've heard Andy. And uh, another person who is and, – and kids, you should look this up because I'm sure the Center for the Study of Science Fiction has tapes. The best reader I ever heard was Roger Zelazny. Ooh. And okay, he was so – me a bar. You're setting me a goal, which is <laughs> to be better than Roger Zelazny. He absolutely was explosive. Um, and he knew he was good. But he was he, – he was, as you say, he was an actor. He had uh, you know, studied – renaissance drama i mean uh but but the kind of thing after i heard him read i went back after that and looked at some zelazny stories and oh that's what that sounds like it's different right. the rhythm is different i suppose you know who else is sorry. like for me is karen joy fowler she's got that very flat affect you know and you read her stuff and it's fantastic once you've heard her especially because you hear her calm pragmatic voice yeah of, bring it out for you and you realize that these horrors that she's writing about and then reading to you in this calm voice there's something so chilling about that the one example i can really think of where hearing a an author read their work changed my entire perception of it was the work of garrison keelor I had, oh, yes, yeah. I, I tried to read Lake Wobbegon Days. I'd been told that it had been hilarious. I'd never encountered his radio programs at that point in my life. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, this book has is completely uninteresting. I have no idea why people like it. And then I heard mm-hmm. the Prairie Home Companion once, went back and read it and thought it was hilarious. Because all of the yeah. beats are all of the beats are spoken word beats rather than written beats Absolutely. on the page. Right. You write differently. And I find, because I had just um, converted Bella Bow to read the audiobook, is that you write differently when you know it will be read. Um, and I, one of my, because I'm always playing intellectual games with myself as a writer, one of them is how elaborate can I write and still read it out loud? Riverbank's going to be the challenge because that is the diction is so ornate in some places. And I'm going to see if I can, you know, navigate six subordinate clauses um, with the noun and the subject <laughs> and verb embedded three quarters of the way through. I'm going to have to see if I can pull that off. But this is the kind of challenge I love. I read um, uh, my uh, wife reincarnated as a solitaire, which is the Lawrence Stern the Lawrence story. Stern. And it's uh, nothing but clauses inside other clauses with like little ancillary clauses and then side moments. And then, oh, wait, I forgot to tell you this parentheticals and try to get all the way through and then keep the thread of this sentence was a great challenge for writing. But it was even more fun to read out loud, I have to say. Just just, just a, a, a footnote to that, because 18th century prose in general, one of the movies, and I've not seen this in years, but I know kids, you know it. Was, was Tony Richardson's film of Tom Jones, which had a narration, which was Henry yes. Fielding's narration being read by some actor. And it was, I don't know, it was, it was kind of utterly hypnotic in a way. And yet um, it, 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 it seemed very arch and artificial, but, but at the same time, it turned the movie into a story in a way that the movie wouldn't have been without that narration. Uh, so I, I, I think there's, there's, there's a 
place for that in, in, in all art forms, I suppose. Well, and, and that elaborate narration, that, that 18th century um, ornateness, that, I mean, yeah. that, that is its own glorious thing. Um, I've been reading uh, late, uh, early, early 18th century and then late 18th century into early 19th century, and the voice is intoxicating. I pine to read it out loud. And I'm going to mention it because it's it's a fantasy story. It's an it narrative. It's called um, it's by Francis Coventry, and it's called The Adventures of Pompey the Little, or The History of Pompey the Little, or Adventures of a Lapdog. And it's a um, sort of a uh, uh, like like reading Jonathan Swift writing an animal story. Um, <laughs> And it's a mock heroic. It's like Rape of the Lock, only it's an animal story where this lap dog gets handed from social level to social level. And all of it in this mock language, this mock heroic language, it just shrieks, read me out loud, actually. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. but, uh, tell us a little bit about the new novel because it's um, – you, you've already said it's, it's basically in the world of the wind and the willows, which is one of those worlds that other people have played in. There was um, this uh, right. British writer, uh, Horwood. William Horwood. William Horwood, the same guy who did the the only epic fantasy about molds, as I recall. Right, Duncan. Duncan. Right. Duncan, Duncan Wood. Wood yeah. That's yeah. Duncan Wood. Yeah. There were uh, there have actually been four or five people who've played in Wind in the Willows before this, not counting media um, like movies and stuff like mm, that. Oh yeah. Um, so and that was actually something I thought about. I wrote it as just a gift for my friend Elizabeth um, because she ne- she was sad and she needed something to cheer her up. And the whole thing came out in a two month period. And uh, what I was thinking, this is because of my silver lock thinking. I was like, there aren't any girls in this. And I done, I read some critical stuff because I, I teach animal narratives at the university mm-hmm. of Kansas sometimes. And so I done, read some critical stuff that said, you know, the reason why not is that a um, Graham knew nothing about women. Um, he grew up in the public schools and then the universities and the, that whole period, people were very uncomfortable about this whole idea that some people were girls. And uh, mm-hmm. so what he wrote was a kind of utopian uh, escapist fantasy for men without women. It's all bachelors. Everybody's wow. a bachelor. Horwood actually engages with this in the third of his books, which is called Toad Triumphant. Where a fantastic frog sculptress turns up, or toad sculptress comes up to to sculpt toad, so that he can be sufficient, uh, properly memorialized in Toad Hall. Um, and she's the first female, and of course, Toad falls hopelessly in love with her because that, because Toad Toad's enthusiasms are extreme and always ill advised. Mm-hmm. So I'd read and really enjoyed the Horwood books, but I also thought he hadn't hit the voice quite. He'd hit a very beautiful voice, a very enjoyable voice, but there's certain things he didn't engage with. And what I learned while I was writing this is that um, Wind in the Willows, there are actually three or four things that happen. Um, one is that you have this these uh, um, it's an adventure story. It's a really pleasant, mild adventure story about these mm-hmm. talking animals, um, property owning animals, as I say in Riverbank. Second part is that you also have just these moments like Piper at the Gates of Dawn of high, high, highly romantic 
um, poetry. You know, they're written as prose, but they are Piper at the Gates of Dawn is so over the top lush. And then the third thing you have is verse. You have these little rhymes that Rad especially writes. Um, and I, and I, uh, Horwood had not tried any of the high romantic nature writing, but he had tried the poetry. And uh-huh. when I wrote, Riverbank, I tried the high romantic nature writing, but I didn't try the poetry. And later I thought, maybe I should put the poetry in just to prove I can do it. And then I realized, actually, I can't. <laughs> I'm an adequate poet, but I can't actually write, you know, the kinds of things that he wrote and A. Milne wrote. Yeah. I can't write those. Um, I can write maybe other things. I don't know. But so Riverbank is actually a sequel to Riverbank, uh, Wind in the Willows, where, um, a lady mole appears. She's a, a, a mole, a young mole lady who, with her rabbit companion, moved to the neighborhood, to the riverbank. And they take the sunflower cottage, um, which is my, uh, hat tip to Oscar Wilde and the aesthetic movement. Mm. They take that this sunflower cottage, which uh, has a lawn that leads down to the uh, um, river. And, uh, of course, they have to, because they're the proper class, they have to be sort of brought into the, the neighborhood. They have to be brought into the county. Um, but that means Toad, because he is the leading house Watch. in this, this region. Um, so um, hijinks happen terrible things happen motorcycles are stolen and mm-hmm. um you know kidnappings occur and ransoms are miscommunicated and um misunderstood elopements occur and everything goes horribly awry until the end of chapter 12 at which everything finally comes right again and there you go i just spoiled it for you <laughs> I'm, I'm glad to know, but you you mentioned writing high nature, uh, the kind of high nature writing, some of which is beautiful, as I recall in that. Oh, and there yeah. is throughout throughout Graham, there's a sense of loss, and you figure, okay, it's a loss of it's a loss of innocence, a loss of childhood, a loss of believing these stories. And I wonder if you're writing the material now, looking at nature, that there's a kind of environmental subtext that might not have been something that Kenneth Graham was even aware of, that nature is being lost in a different way than what he was writing about? Absolutely. There is there is absolutely that sentimental, um, and I use that term without the, without the weight, that yeah. sentimental um, nostalgia, the, the sense that there was a time when it was like this and it is not like that anymore, which mm-hmm. is so popular. In writers, especially English writers from like sometime in the late 19th century on, maybe before that. And he uh, and it's very, very clear. I had to, I made a lot of decisions while I was writing this because um, there is a really cool Marxist response to Wind in the Willows called The Wild Wood. Um, I mm. can't remember the author. It was written in the 80s or 90s. Um, and it was a woman writing a Marxist critique of Wind in the Willows um, as fiction. And um, I, so I was thinking a lot about, you know, when we are reading uh, sort of self-consciously innocent works from earlier time, how do we, and that's, you know, that takes us to Lovecraft too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how do we engage with that now in a postmodernist, ironic, 
somewhat embittered um, and also much more aware time. How do I write a Riverbank sequel or a Wind in the Willow sequel? How can I write that with any kind of sincerity? Or do I have to be ironic? Or do I have to find a hybrid where I can be both aware of the flaws of it and also engaging mm-hmm. with it, with it both sincerely and aware of its flaws? And that's, that was really true with Velvet Bow and really true with Riverbank, too, although I made different decisions. I'm curious. Uh, you were talking about reading aloud a moment ago and how you're going to record an audiobook version of the Riverbank. Do you think it will lead you to that process? Will lead you to want to revise what you've done? It did. Um, I always when I am uh, when I did Velipo, and then when I also am prepping for Riverbank, I read the books aloud. I read them aloud during the writing process as well. But I read these books aloud, saying. Can I hit the beats? Am I missing? You know, do I have trouble with a phrase that it doesn't trip off the tongue? It tripped Mm -hmm. off the pen, but it didn't trip off the tongue. And uh, in both cases, I made decisions. I I changed things lavishly because it's my book. You know, I get to. Mm. Um, I changed things to reflect the music, the oral music, the verbal music as opposed to the written music. But when I first wrote them, I was more aware of the written music, the the way that words looked on the page or the way that sentences broke on the page instead of the ways that phrases broke on the tongue. But I I did think about that. And I'm interested because um, I'm working on something right now, which I haven't read out loud yet. Um, And at some point it'll be time. I will read it out loud and then I'll realize all the things I'm getting wrong. And then I'll have to rewrite it again, which is, is the yeah. story of my life. <laughs> is, is there a feeling, though, that that is a better process for understanding writing dialogue than writing the body of the prose itself, which is primarily intended to be read on the page? I wouldn't necessarily agree with that. Um, if you think back to Dickens, mm-hmm. lots of, and that's a moderately literate time. Um, lots of people could read. Everybody, many people could read. Um, but practically speaking, what happened usually is one person read and three people in the room did needlework or they mended socks or they, you know, fixed the watch or they did something else. So the, not, not only are, is literacy a recent invention, um, but also even after literacy became a pretty well known thing, um, we read to each other. Um, and to my mind, you know, we got out of the habit as we beca- we achieved higher and higher levels of literacy. And also as, as we started to find other ways that we could ingest story um, while we were, say, knitting or cooking or something. And that's called television or radio, radio programs. Uh, but ultimately, fiction comes from the the fireside. Fiction comes from us speaking, one person saying, oh, I just got this book. Let me read. Um, or, oh, I have a story to tell you. Or, or, oh, you wouldn't believe the crazy thing that happened at work today. You know, that's, that's where story comes from. 
And so that's what I'm pointing to with everything I'm doing. Now, I'm a very elaborate reader because I love diction and I love fancy sentences and stuff. I don't know how I'd feel reading like Stephanie Myers out loud. Hmm. Um, but, but I, I guess, know, yeah, fiction, fiction can read out loud or be read on the page. But sometimes uh, when you're talking about contemporary idioms, contemporary speech, uh, something that might not look right on the page actually sounds perfectly right. Early in his career, when he started writing thrillers, I, El- Elmore Leonard got criticized because his dialogue looked unnatural on the page. And, and yet. Was, and yet, if you read it aloud, it was, it was full of sentence fragments, people interrupting themselves, people backtracking on sentences, kind of sentences that are, we hear our president spew all the time. <laughs> uh, That's interesting. Well, no, it's not not as interesting. But but basically, what he was doing, and I actually talked to him about this once, was he he went down to the Detroit police station and copied down dialogue he was listening to, and yeah. so he was recreating dialogue that. And, and he later became very famous and successful for this. So I'm not as it's not as other criticism to held up. But initially, the fact that that dialogue did not look formal enough on the page disturbed some of his readers because mm-hmm. people didn't seem to be speaking articulately. And his point was people don't speak articulately most of yeah. the time, especially especially gangsters in Detroit. Dialogue <laughs> requires – dialogue is alchemy because what it has to do is it has to be the platonic ideal of what needs to be said. Um, it's not the way people really talk because people talk with a lot of ums and incomplete yeah. sentences unless they're trying really hard because they're on a podcast or something. Comma, she said. Um, <laughs> exclamation. But, uh, right, exclamation point. Oh, you never use exclamation point. But um, but I and see, there was an um right there. Hmm. Uh, so you find this this uh, this compromise position, which is both accurate and also idealized, where people don't um and ah and circle back on themselves the way they do in real life. Anybody who has ever had a fight with a partner knows that the argument you have with your partner goes on four and a half times longer than it needs to. And it circles back on itself and it repeats things. And that's really boring to read. Um, So you find a perfected dialogue and Elmer Leonard, who I'm an enormous fan of, in fact, the next time I see you, Gary, I'm going to touch your sleeve because I am a huge fan. And you actually talked to him. And I, 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 can't I was on the radio. Um, but, the, but I do think that dialogue is its own. Dialogue is hard because it has to be both real and realistic. And those are not the same thing. Good point. Very good distinction. Well, because I'm, I'm, I'm thinking. Hmm? Oh, go ahead, John. No, you go ahead. Good. It's fine. I was just going to say, I was thinking uh, that some of the most unnatural dialogue uh, of any writer in our science fiction field is, is the dialogue that Ray Bradbury wrote. And yet, <laughs> yeah. nobody ever talked like that. But in Bradbury land, that dialogue is what you needed to move that story forward. Right. Well, he was, he was a poet first and foremost in some ways. Yeah. So his stories, whatever they were, they were music. And so the dialogue didn't have to be realistic because we are making music and nobody ever talked naturally in an opera. Nobody ever talked naturally in an Irish bar song. They, uh-huh. Everything is so formal. 
everything is so different, but it's okay because it's not meant to be the way real people talk. It's meant to be realistic, but not real. Yeah. Sort of realistic. In the world of Bradbury. Mm -hmm. So I should say we're we're at the end of our hour pretty much. And I just wanted to say sort of DreamQuest Developed Bow is out. Uh, the Riverbank is done and will be coming out later in the year. You mentioned sort of that you're working on other things. What are you casting your eye towards most actively next? That's, I don't know, Jonathan. That's part of the problem. I have a novelette that is about 2,000 words from the end um, that I'm grinding through right now. It's called Wasturus, um, and it's – Talking chickens, velociraptors, and Chaucer, sort of. Okay, I'm, I'm on board. <laughs> I had you at talking chickens and velociraptors, didn't I? Um, the uh, and then I and I took a break. Um, and this is a um, it's a new project that a artist contacted me because she was interested in doing an exquisite corpse book, mm-hmm. and she sent me a picture which I found so compelling and interesting that. Originally, I said yes because, you know, she was married to somebody who I liked, and I thought, this will be great. But um, And I thought, I'll whack out a 2,000-word story for her, and it'll be perfectly fine. But I fell in love with it, and it's turning into this really – it's going to be very short, but it's going to be a really good story, I think. I'm very happy with it. Um, right now, it's called Jewel. Mm-hmm. Um Although that's a problem. I mean, Jewel, what the hell kind of a name is that, right? <laughs> but right now it's the only name I have because I can't really call it any of the other things I can think of at the moment. But after that, I have – I've everything I've thought of is really sort of sequels to things. So I thought it would be really fun to write a sequel to The Riverbank called The American Tour. I thought it would be really fun to write a sequel to Velvet Bow, um, which – might be um, Nimue and Velipo, and I'm looking at you right now, Jonathan, thinking, um, <laughs> inserting, because we're talking about women who have been mistreated by history or women who yeah. everybody thinks they know what their story is. And I thought Nimue, um, Merlin's captor slash nymph who wrecked his life. I'm trying to think what I would do with her, but I just feel like there's something really important there. Um but I don't know what the next project is because I have a couple of other things that I could do instead. Mm-hmm. And I have a space opera that I started thinking Ooh. through, which would be utterly new because I've never written a space opera. So I'm still in the world building. I've done like I figured out all my characters, um, but now I'm in the world building because I don't know if I can just file the serial numbers off the hegemony or something and say that'll work (laughs) or anything else. And space opera actually is surprisingly hard if you don't want to just, you know, take somebody else's work and pretend it's yours. True. I think it's, and there are all sorts of challenges to to break the nautical nautical adventure mold that sits underneath it and to make it some kind of credible thing to work as a piece, as a piece of story and a piece of world building. And I am exactly, I could imagine that it is a different kind of world building to the kind of world building you've done before. Exactly. I've never tried a space opera. I've written some science fiction. Mm. And what I'm and now I realize why I've never tried space opera because I'm a historian by training. <laughs> and historians don't bullshit. 
I mean, they do a little bit in the margins if they don't quite know what's going on. But the point of a historian is interpolative, that you look at what exists and then you figure out the pieces you don't know. In space opera, there are no pieces. Yeah. You have to build the whole thing from whole cloth by extrapolating. So it's not interpolative, it's extrapolative. Yeah. And that is, so I don't know, it's really hard, but I'm going to... Um, I'm done with like my current projects by this summer. Yeah. And at that point, I better have a good idea of what I want to do next. Or I'm going to waste a lot of time watching, uh, you know, old TV shows. <laughs> well, on and that maybe, note, yeah. On that, <laughs> I mean, just, just as, as, as a footnote to that, there is a, uh, as, you, did you read Asimov's poem on the foundations of SF success where he basically wrote an entire poem acknowledging that he ripped off the Foundation Trilogy from Gibbon. The line in the poem is, it just takes a little cribbon from the works of Edward Gibbon and that and his pal Thucydides. Um, so that's how you write a space opera. Why did I go to, which is the one, which is the Latin, um, the, the, it wasn't Pliny, the, the super bitchy one, the one who hated everybody and wrote like his private lives. It's Plutarch, right? Who wrote his super busy private yeah. lives? Yes, and they are like everybody was like having sex with goats, and they were enjoying it, and they were all vile, 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 vile. And I've always thought that would be pretty fun to write. Of course, that's Dune. Now that I think about it, but <laughs> <laughs> never mind. Yes, done already. Yeah. Well, on that note, we shall wind up pondering the sex with goats, and. Uh... <laughs> Congratulate you again on your Net Nebula nomination, and thank you s- thank sincerely you so for joining us today. It's been a pleasure; it always, always is. Ever. I would join you guys every week if we worked it out, because it's such a pleasure to hang out with you guys. Thank you so much. And I envy you both. You probably see each other later in the year, but I hope somewhere down the road we will, we will cross paths again. You will come back to North America. I know you will. You oh, can't yeah. help it. At some point, not right At now. At some point. Okay. Not when they're beating up, or, well, well, when they're mistreating, yeah. you know, great Australian young yeah. adult writers at the border. I know. That's, that's, that's exactly. exactly. Oh, watch my, watch me lose my yeah. temper again. <laughs> and Gary, until next week. Until next week. And we should remind everybody, we finished 300 of these now. Yeah, dear God. Congratulations, you guys. That is Thank absolutely you. amazing. I cannot and, believe uh, that. A utter pleasure to be part of it. I'm honored that you invited me for a milestone. Oh, always wonderful. Okay. Well, until next time, fare thee well.